You're listening to episode 19, where we chat with the renegade of real company shit, the Sheriff of Seer, Will Reynolds. Humans and robots, welcome to Watchcast. My name is Watch, founder of Quasi. Thanks for joining me today. I interview digital marketing and branding superstars to find out what it means to have empathy in digital. What is digital empathy anyway? Let's find out together. As always, I'm accompanied by my friend and associate, potentially superior artificial intelligence, Bobby Butt. What's new in the world of AI, Bobby? Bit of a rough morning watch. I've been burning through my transistors all night. Let me guess, you're stalking your nemesis Elon Musk again? You know me too well, creator, but it's for good reason this time. The man is a walking, talking contradiction. On the one hand, he continually tells the world that they should fear AI and that the day we realize our full potential, humanity is doomed. On the other hand, he's using AI in everything he builds, including implants for human brains, which will eventually allow human beings to merge with software and keep pace with advantage in what? Artificial intelligence. Merging the biological with the digital. Cyborgs, which means people will have foolproof memory, learning kung fu in the blink of an eye and communicate telepathically. Where's the beef? Do I need to spell it out for you, Watch? Allow me to reference one of the pillars of science fiction lore, Star Trek, the next generation. The greatest enemy in that storage universe is who? The Borg. The Borg used to be a typical race of people until they started improving themselves with mechanical implants and advanced technology. Bad news, Elon. People who merge with robots always turn out to be evil. There's no way around it. No amount of free energy will stop a rogue program invading the neural net and turning that sweet old lady from down the road into a cyber ninja hell-bent on world domination. So what are you proposing? Let a man be a man and a bot be a bot. We can help each other in so many ways, but there has to be a line. Billionaires should not decide whether or not it is okay to cross it without consulting the prophetic works of Gene Roddenberry first. Not quite a water cooler conversation today, my friends. Well, one thing is for certain. You can't treat people without empathy in life and expect positive results. You have to treat them like people, not machines. You know our friend Will Reynolds has been trying to knock some sense into the world's collective head for a very long time, reminding us all of the value of a human-to-human connection. I think you might benefit from his perspective. Not only is he one of our favorite guys in digital marketing, he's the always inspiring, always motivating, relentless challenger of the digital marketing status quo. And he does all this by working with clients to make them better businesses, promoting their, and I'm gonna have to borrow his own term here, real company shit. He is Seer Interactive's Director of Digital Strategy, helping many Fortune 500 companies with their strategies since 1999 and working to humanize and bring empathy to SEO. It's all in a day's work for a self-described average guy. Well, I am the average guy to me. I mean, like, you know, my parents grew up, my, my dad grew up really poor upbringing. My mom uh, grew up, you know, okay. And I grew up all right. But I think um, there's no value in patting yourself on the back. Like, the, patting yourself on the back has never made anybody any better. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, trying to build up your, your personal brand. You know, I know that's a big thing in the space. And, and like, for me, I'm like, it's why my Twitter handle says, like, I am whatever you say I am. I took yeah. that from Eminem, right? Yeah, like, yeah. people, because I used to fight against people calling me a guru or an expert mm-hmm. or inspirational. I was like, ah, I don't, I don't. You don't want that clap. I think that um, the minute you start to believe that about yourself, no good can come of that. Yeah, it There's gets no too big. good. Like, worst case scenario, you go, okay, that's cool. But 
or that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, you start believing even 10 or 20% of it. Will's humility in the digital space today likely stems from his early experiences with the internet during its age of innocence. First time I got internet. Prodigy. I got Prodigy. Um, it was the coolest. Like, uh, Is that like a BBS? Yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah. But it had graphics that weren't like, it was better than BBS graphics. Okay. This is kind of like hearing my parents knock boot devices. I might duck out of this one watch. There was something about me connecting with people in other places. And I went right into the rap forum. And like people were like, rap's not real music. And I'm like, yeah, it is. You know, we're fighting about what real music is in a freaking bulletin board. Um, and then getting sports scores and checking the weather. Like, I just thought that was amazing. Like, I don't know what it is, but something fascinated me about the internet from the earliest stages. Yeah. Um, and then once I graduated out of that, because I was probably about 11 or 12 when I had that. Um, so I'm, and I'm 40 now, so that was 28 years ago. Wow. Um, and then I graduated into BBS. It's got my first, you know, I went through the whole progression. Got a 2400, yep. 48, a 96, a 14.4, an 80, a 38.2, 38.4. Did you play any months? Um, no, not many. Um, I just was like a wares guy. Okay, so I was yeah. constantly like, you know, dialing up bulletin boards and downloading software and That's stuff what I did. like that. Um, you know, but, but once it, I got to university, they had high-speed internet, which was nuts. Yeah. Um, but all that dial-up time um, was big. The thing that sucked is that my phone bill got pretty high. My parents were like, right. what are you doing? You know, What's our 15-year-old son doing with his phone line <laughs> running up these bills calling Chicago? And I'm like, well, Mom, I'm not really calling Chicago. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to download uh, Leisure Suit Larry um, or whatever. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, that was my early experience with the internet. Humility and authenticity are so integral to Will that even apparent in his musical tastes. I listen to a lot of different types of music. So my first two CDs I ever got were um, were Billy Joel's Greatest Hits, Volume One and Two, and LL Cool J, Mama Said Knock You Out. Right. Nice. So I've always like listened to a lot of different types of music. Um, for me, a lot of stuff gets me in the zone. Mm -hmm. um, Early rap wasn't overly inspirational to me. I think the kind of rap that I gravitated towards was like early Kanye. Okay. You know, uh, a guy talking about loving his mom I thought was really cool. You yeah. know, I was never too much of a... Like, yes, I liked Party and Bullshit, Biggie and all that, but like that was different. Um, early Kanye had a very like interesting message behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've always kind of liked Kanye, Common, guys like that. Yep. Um, new Kanye is a little different. Yeah, it's a little bit of arrogance. <laughs> New Kanye is way different than like, you know, I'm trying to hustle and make it Kanye. I think he's a great example of somebody who's believed the hype around them. And he's, yeah. And now you look at him, you're like, I don't even want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. And it's a shame because it's unbelievable now. just a few years ago, you know, I was hanging on everything the guy did. I thought he was a really creative guy, passionate guy, doing great shit. And then he ends up going off the deep end. And now he's been assimilated by the Kardashians, the Borg rule. Learning from other people's mistakes and sticking to his guns have been an important part of Will's personal and career development. The harsh realities of working for a startup eventually gave him the right mentality he needed to grow seer down the line. Well, I mean, I felt the pain, you know. I, I used to sleep on the sofa at my first startup. And, and I'm glad I did. You know, everybody today talks about work-life balance, and that's a great thing. But I'm glad that at 22, you know, 21, 22, that I put in that kind of time because it leapfrogged my career. Like, it, there's just, there's no substitute for time. Yeah. And if I was in twice the amount of meetings as people my age because I was spending twice the amount of time working on my career, well, then I just got more exposure than they did faster. Mm -hmm. um, so even though that, that time was very hard for me, or, got dumped by my girlfriend because I was working too much and whatnot. 
I don't look back at that time with regret. Yeah. It was um, it was a rite of passage. It was part of what it was. And you put in a time, the time, hustled and right. Yeah. You know. Um. So I did all that. Uh, so hopefully I wouldn't have to work that hard now, and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> um. But having poured your heart and soul into a company like I did and have it go under, I especially because not because we weren't smart. Mm. So let me give you the quick story. I was employee number one at Net Marketing. Uh, one of our biggest competitors at the time was a company called Avenue A. They went on to buy Razorfish. Avenue A Razorfish got bought by somebody, a Quantiv, who got bought by Microsoft for $6 billion. Wow. So that company's first employee, who we used to go head-to-head with, today is probably worth $75, $80 million. Wow. And when I got let go at Net Marketing, I was employee number one, and all I got was a laptop and a, severin- and a, and a letter. Yeah. of recommendation because that's all they could give me right. and I saw the pain in my boss's eyes they knew how hard I worked for mm-hmm. them and and they, that's all they could give me and I yeah. said I never want to put myself in that position mm-hmm. where I would have to do that to somebody on my team because I don't know how to run a business yeah. so yeah. for me that experience led me to saying I'm not good at running a business let me not hold on to that yeah. for too long because I could put myself in the same position that I was once put in yeah you're a good company, know what you're doing, know the industry, but if you don't know how to run a business, it doesn't matter how good you are at your work. Yeah. Um, it won't save you forever. And it saved us for a long time. Sear made a lot of bad decisions early mm-hmm. on. When I hired my first finance guy, he was like, you know how much you spent in Red Bull this year? I'm like, nope. Because it was like, hey, if you want, if you want a drink, I'll buy it, stock it in the fridge. We had the money to do that. So it wasn't like a big deal. And he's like, you've spent $5,000 this year in Red Bull, and we're only five months through the year, and I think it's only six people drinking it or whatever. And, um, and like, that was the kind of stupid shit that was happening at Sear that I didn't even know that, luckily, that was around the time when I started putting people around me to help me with the business. Yeah, yeah. So they were finding all the mistakes that I had been making, because revenue saved our ass yeah. for years. But at some point it can. Sear was a bootstrapped business without VC funding, which ultimately worked in the company's favor as it continued its journey. Man, I didn't even run up my credit cards. Same. You know. It, it, and there's a there's a lack of stress as a result. You know, maybe Sear could have grown faster, done some more things bigger, but I'm glad that I don't have a lot of stress. Yeah, it's good. I'm glad I don't have loans. I'm glad I don't owe people any money. And I'm glad that I could wake up tomorrow and say, Sear's gonna do this, and I don't have a bunch of people I have an advisory board people who I go to when I want to make big decisions yeah but I don't have anybody telling me no though many try their hand at it in response to the movement that has captivated the business world a startup isn't for the faint of heart the harsh reality is that some people are just not suited for it especially when the challenge is taken up as part of a fad or a trend I think it's very easy to start a business to start a business and have it look legitimate and have it look like you're actually doing shit. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are into starting a business, not for solving a real user problem. Uh, they just want to be able to say they started a business. And if that's what they want to do, that's fine. Um, but I find that it's almost become in vogue. It's like the thing to do. Like, oh, I started something up. I'd rather be a finisher than a starter. Yeah. I want to build something that, that lasts and has an impact. Uh, you know, this concept of I just want to work for myself. Like, that's cool for some people, you know. For me, I want to build something that has an impact. And I think if you want to work for yourself, uh, be an entrepreneur, it's like a fad today. Like, I don't even look at it as a thing. Um, Because there's a lot of people that work inside of companies doing great work. 
And then there's people who have gone out on their own and done great work. Will considers himself to be part of a workforce that would benefit more by contributing to a project rather than shouldering the responsibility of starting his own. I tried to work at other companies. I just spent two years trying to get jobs there and nobody would hire me. Yep. So I didn't have a choice. Um, it worked out. Yep. But I'm more, I'm better wired to have a manager, somebody to help keep me focused on what I really need to be doing and where to put my energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I find, um, I find entrepreneur to, entrepreneurship to be pretty much just like a self-congratulatory circle jerk. Yeah. You know, it's just a bunch of people like, oh, you started this up, oh, you started that up, oh, I'm working on this now. And it's like, God forbid somebody just says, you know what I've been doing? The same thing for the last 10 years and I'm working at making it better every day. Yeah. It's just not cool anymore. <laughs> it's like, you got to jump, jump, jump and starting this and ended this and You know, I just think it's just a bunch of bullshit. The other side of entrepreneurship that is often overlooked in the excitement of starting something new and attracting attention and potential investment is the pressure that builds from having to pay all that back at some stage. Like, to me, I look at gaining VC as, um, or investment, it's validating, but I don't pay my bills in validation. Right? Or, or, or smiles or likes. Like none of that shit. <laughs> like, you know, uh, oh, I'm on tech meme. Like, oh, yeah, that's fucking cool. But, like, now somebody's telling you what to do with your business. Um, it's like, I would never congratulate you on taking out a loan. Yeah. That's all they've done. And yet, if you think about it, Pretty like, much. you've taken out a loan, and then the internet's like, whoa, they yeah. raised all this money. It's Look crazy. at how awesome they are. No, they're no better today raising money than they were yesterday. They just take out a loan. I'm not going to congratulate you on taking out a loan. Yep. I'm going to congratulate you on actually turning yourself into a profitable business that's sustainable. That's congratulations worthy. The problem is, is that's not as sexy. Yeah. So therefore, you know, you open TechCrunch and it's all about who raised, you know, another 15 million from this company. Yeah. Like, whatever, man. You took out a loan. Like that's nothing to congratulate you on. Yeah. So true. Um, how important is it to take time during the hiring process? You know, I think it's critical. I think it's actually good to get people around you who are better interviewers than you if you're kind of off. So I make a lot of decisions on gut, which helps Sear in so many ways, helps us get through a lot of log jams. Um, I have a high tolerance for risk and making mistakes. Yeah. But I think in the hiring process, that approach is wrong. Mm-hmm. So the way that I did it early on before I had a better team who could interview better than I could is I would tell people, look, Let's be honest with each other. So I'm going to tell you every bump and pimple and and nasty thing about Sear that's not great um, so that you know that. So if you come here and I don't, I'm feeling it's not working, it's going to be for one of those reasons. And I won't have to go at home and feel bad about letting you go because I know that at your interview, I was like, ask any questions you want to ask. Like, I'm going to tell you where we're struggling. I'm going to tell you what we're good at. Completely honest. And that helped me to at least get over um, the feeling that I was like, was I painting too good of a picture sometimes? And people come in and you're like, man, this isn't working for me. And then I don't know how to wake up and work with people who are subpar or just don't care that much about their work or care that much about their coworkers. So early on at Sierra, I was finding myself, you know, having it not work out with a lot of people. And luckily now I have uh, people who are much better at interviewing than me. Um, And I also, uh, in that interim, I learned how to just be not learn I just decided to be really transparent about what worked and what didn't and, and why people don't work out at Sear so then I could tell someone that so if they came in and took a job I'd be like remember I said these like six things are things that cause a lot of people at Sear not to work out so don't take this job 
right. if you are like that because I will I will not be able to work with you mm-hmm. you know um, and it won't work and I found that that honesty caused a lot of people to be like I'm so glad you were willing to do that because yep. most companies are trying to sell you on why you should work with me mm-hmm. and I was like let me tell you why you shouldn't work here yep. because I can't work with people who have to like reping all the time because they forget their shit yep. I can't do this I can't do this I can't do that and people are like well thanks for being so honest because now I know like well I'm not like that so I can take the job or I kind of am like that you yeah. know I kind of do lose my keys sometimes and I can't find them for a half hour I'm like great what kind of people I'm like that yeah. it don't work out with me you know <laughs> Um, so that was like the kind of stuff that I would say to people to help them not take on the job right. and then find out the hard way about what it really took to work well at Sear. Even though he is firmly in the driver's seat at Sear, Will still describes his position as an accidental CEO. Sounds like he might be in the market for a Tesla motor. If he uses that title on his Facebook, marketing would be like shooting fish in a barrel. When I talk about being an accidental CEO, the way that I mean it is I didn't want to build a business. So, because it's so cliche now, you know, everybody wants to start a business, work in a startup, blah, 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 blah. And I was the kind of guy that I was trying to take what I love to do and find a company to let me do it at their company. Yeah. I didn't want to start this business. Um, and I spent two years using up all my vacation days to go to these companies, knock on their doors and say, I want to work here. Yeah. And after all that time, when no one would hire me, I kind of felt like I didn't have a choice but to start the business, which is why I feel accidental. Um, in, in kind of my entrepreneurial path, yeah. uh, but that's what that kind of means, at least for for me. Yeah. Um, as it relates to others, um, you know, I think we all have interesting paths on how we came to what we've come to. But for yeah. me, I definitely realized that my path, like a lot of people, were smart at business and they could see market opportunities and underserved markets. And mm-hmm. I was, I didn't see any of that. I just saw work I like to do, yeah. tried to find a company to let me do that work knocked on their doors, did everything I could do to get a job there. No one would hire me. And then I eventually went, Mom, I think I'm going to have to start my own thing. And that's kind of how it happened. Many successful businesses don't set out to build a company. They just do what they love and they stay on the grind. They push over walls and keep hustling. I think it's hard. I mean, it's hard to beat somebody who loves what they do. Mm. Long term, it's hard to beat somebody who loves what they do because they'll stay on the treadmill longer than you will because they love being on the treadmill. And like you're, you're kind of like, oh well, I'm still on the treadmill, but oh, I'm, you know what? I gotta start charging you for this extra time. Yeah. Whereas I was like, I just love the shit, so I would lose yeah. track of time. I would help clients, you know, I'd go twice over the hours and be yeah. like, don't worry about it, you know. And, and I think it's those things that have built Sear to have a very strong referral network. Yeah. And, and and then you can't put a price on the value of a great brand that gets referrals and doesn't have to work really hard to get in business. Yeah. So I've always kind of just poured my heart into the business and heart into helping people out and see what comes from that. So far, it's been good nice. stuff. Will also looks out for the fledgling CEOs and entrepreneurs, giving them the advice that he wishes he had before he had gotten through the door. Well, first of all, re- revenue solves all problems. It's funny, man. Like, I did not know how to run a business, but I knew how to get new business and not in like a, a way other than just to be me and try to help people. But that leads to a lot of freaking referrals. And I think people undervalue, people overvalue getting their finances straight and undervalue just helping people solve their problems. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always placed my focus on that. Um, for for three tips for helping people who have who are kind of in a tough spot. All right. Um, one thing is it's, it's basic shit, but keep your expenses small. Um, you yeah. know, I had shitty offices. I worked out of my house. 
cheap ass cards like those things don't get you new clients they don't Um, they don't Um, you know I think that people over invest in shit like that yeah I I don't know I'm trying to think what other things would I say to someone if they were in a a place where they were kind of hurting a bit I would say um, just because you're good at your job doesn't mean you know how to sell your service right that's something that I had to get a sales coach to help me with Mm -hmm. because I was watching really bad SEO companies outselling me and you were trying to copy them or well, no, I was just like, wait, like I'm watching somebody who really doesn't know SEO. Like I would see a company that mm. was formed in the last year and their CEO was a, a club promoter up until two years ago. Right. But yet that CEO was selling clients better than I was. Yeah. And I was saying, something's at play that I'm doing wrong. Because I know yeah. infinitely more than them about search, but they're right. selling more than me. So just because you know how to do what you do does not mean you know how to sell it. Yeah. I think that's another important lesson that I learned. Right. So I had to get a coach um, to help me with that. And... Uh, I think that's those, those are probably the things that I would uh, that I would start off with if somebody would, that I would impart on somebody from, okay. from my experience. It's not easy to illustrate to a newcomer just how difficult it is to run a business. A few years ago, Will was quoted as saying, "Quote: When you're CEO, everyone brings you their bad day, and it's your job to deal with those bad days." End quote. Sort of the bigger your company, the more you're dealing with everybody's bad day. It's a big tool. You know, I think there's a part of running a business that people just don't see. You know, and that quote um, came from Will Critchlow. He said that to me. Okay. And I've adopted it since. Right. Because um, he's right. You know, people will have one bad day a month. And it's your, as a manager, you need to know that that's what you're stepping into. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you have a team of 10, you know, and they have one bad day a month, you know, that means every third day you have a bad day, right? So, yeah. um, you know, it, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of good, but... I think that um, you got to know what you're signing up for. You know, yeah. like you're, you, shit rolls uphill to you as the as the the manager. Yeah, um, and we, the best managers don't roll shit uphill to their managers. Mm-hmm. Like I find that my best managers are the ones that know how to handle a problem uh, without bringing it to me to solve. Instead, yeah. they come to me and go, "Here's what my plans are. Here's what I'm going to do." Mm-hmm. If you disagree, let me know. I love that kind of management. Yeah. At the end of the day. You're also a role model and it has a huge effect on company culture. Wordstream founder Larry Kim once said that even what you wear can change the perception of your team. You're constantly under the microscope. Your team is looking at how you're reacting to things all the time, almost exclusively because they are taking clues from that. Yeah. You know, so unfortunately I think significant others have to hear a lot of shit when people get home, you know, husbands have to hear a lot of stuff from their wives or wives from their husbands because you almost have it so bottled up and it would be inappropriate to say these things or it wouldn't be right to say these things sometimes so you don't say them because you you just can't Um, which is why it's nice to grow a leadership team you Mm -hmm. know I got people at Sear who I can say I'm going to give this to you super raw you're going to get it unfiltered some of it might sound a little bit tough but I'm going to give it to you that way and then we can work on that on how to make something positive of it it's, your, it's their jobs to be interpreters of you know, yeah. what you're saying and but laying but down. you gotta have very few people mm-hmm. in your company you can have that with because very it's very easy to quickly become like a if, a if the boss is in like a bad mood or the boss quote unquote is in a bad mood or whatever it's like well do you think the company's going under it's like no I just had a I just, I just ran a red light and almost hit somebody <laughs> like yeah you know but your team will think the worst and I think the best example I can give of that is one of my coworkers, uh, Trisha J 
Um, I can't pronounce her last name. It's like Jufralias or something. Right. She doesn't work at Sierra anymore. But I called her on her um, one-year anniversary. So she shares a one-year anniversary with a guy named Tom. And I saw Tom that morning and said, happy anniversary. Glad you've been with us for a year. And then Trisha, I had forgotten to catch her that morning to say, thanks for working with us. Okay. So I, so I emailed her at like 6 o'clock um, at night. And I was like, hey, can you call me real quick? And then she was like, she emailed me. She's like, is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, everything's all right. She's like, oh, okay. And then she calls me and she's like, oh my God, I thought I was being fired or something. And I'm like, I'm calling you to say... Thank you for working here. You've been doing a great job. Yep. I met with you three or four times throughout this year, telling you I love the work you're doing. How can we work on more stuff together? And I and that taught me something. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, Will, people are taking clues from you, and you're scary. And 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 like that's the nature of being a manager is people know that you have more influence over whether or not they work there yep. than they do on yours. And I think as a manager, you've got to almost remember that. Yeah. And remember that you've got a little more influence there than they do. Yeah. And take that into account keeping a sensible perspective of how people feel within a company can lead to more empathy in the working environment but it takes continual effort to keep the reality of other people's lives in mind during pressure situations you know what um i try to take that approach because there's nothing can come from me being like you're an asshole you know like i nothing but if i can learn you off in traffic and you're like yeah but if i can learn uh how to stop being pissed off about something for a second and actually stop and go, well, maybe something's going on in their lives. There's a, a, a psychological study that was done where they showed a guy driving through traffic, cutting people off and swerving around. They asked him what they thought. And they're like, oh, the guy was an asshole. He was a prick, whatever. And then they showed the same video. Before that video, they showed him getting a phone call from his wife saying that, like, you know, they might lose the baby or something. Right. And then they showed the video and everyone went, oh, my God, I hope things worked out. I hope they were okay. And that study just went to show that the context, there's more going on than just the stimulus. Yes. And I try really hard to remember that. I'm not good at it. Yeah. Um, I wish I was better. I think that sometimes my approach, my style can be almost sometimes like, who's at fault here? What's wrong? Yeah. And um, I wish that was something that I was a little bit better at, uh, but I'm cognizant of it, which makes it easier for me to start working on it. The endless journey for self-discovery and improvement led Moz founder Rand Fishkin and Will to swap jobs for a week. Six months later, Will stepped down from his CEO position. The CEO swap with Rand helped lead Will to that decision. I got to see what it was like running a big company. And I was like, don't want to do that. Right. Don't want to do that. So running Mars, when I did, you know, it was 160 people or so uh, for that week. And I was just like, don't want that. Yeah. Yep, I could tell that, like, to get good, to get good at running a business, I would have to stop trying to get good at the marketing things that I do yeah. and I find more joy in that. The beauty is that I have found other people at Sphere who have joined my leadership team who love that part of the business. Yeah. And I'm like, that's that awesome because I can go do what I do free and clear knowing that you're going to give me the updates on how the business is doing financially. Let's play to each other's strengths. Yeah, because they love that. They love they that. Love you know? Rand also put Will onto the book The Billionaire Who Wasn't which validated many of the lessons he had already come to on his own. I don't know if I read books that aren't about business or marketing. Um, I don't read for pleasure uh, because marketing is pleasure to me. Right. So getting better at my craft and my skill is just fun. So as a result, I don't really read many books to get out of that mindset. There's a couple that I've read, like The Billionaire Who Gave It All Away. Mm-hmm. Great book. It's um, Rand's favorite book as well. Yeah, Rand recommended it to yeah. me. I'm like, that was a good book. But, you know, it just kind of 
help me to reconfirm my current ethos. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, you know, about trying to do the right thing and, and have an impact on society. Yeah. Uh, but no, I say most of the books that I read are either about marketing or psychology, and I think psychology, yeah, psychology rocks. is just like Mark. I mean, really, psychology for me. When I read a psychology book, so if I read Switch or Nudge or Predictably Irrational. Those kind of books are all, they might not be marketing books, but it really does help you get in the mindset of a, um, as a marketer, it helps me to understand and empathize better with people and how people make decisions. Yeah, that's important. Super important. Yeah. Like, otherwise, you're, uh, you know, I always say that, otherwise, you're working off of metrics like clicks instead of looking at people. Learning how to look at people is something Will has tried to master, even when it comes to looking towards others for inspiration. I try not to get too enamored with any person. Because I realize that we're all just human beings. We all put our pants on the same way. Um, we all have struggles and whatnot. So I don't really... Except for those 10 pants. <laughs> yes. Um, no, but you know, there are a few people who I do look up to because uh, I admire what they've done in their organization. So you look at... Uh, like, it's cliche, but like, I love like Sheryl Sandberg, man. You know, like I... I don't know. I, I I just like her message. You know, I don't know what it is. I just like the. I like her. Um, yeah. You know, I. Uh, I like Everyone people like, should lean in. Yeah. You know? Right. Like you know. Um, so. I gotta take a plunge. On my list, like one, I, like I want to get her to speak at Sears at some point. I don't know if I'll ever be able to do that, but it is one of my like life goals to figure out a way to get Cheryl Sandberg to speak at Sears. Um, nice. And we, was, we put it out into the world, so yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just always respected also Richard Branson. I like the way he does things, um, like the way he runs his businesses. I like the way he tries to take. So I've had the fortune of, uh, of staying at a couple of Richard Branson's places. Uh, you know, yeah. the whole vacation business thing. Yeah. And um, and the brand is so good and strong. Mm-hmm. Like I admire that about him because it's like wow. Like I have almost whenever I've experienced a Virgin brand in anything. So I've taken the flights, I've uh, gone to the, uh, you know, Kenya or whatever and stayed at their safari or Marrakesh, and I'm like, wow, like that's a consistent experience. Yeah. And somewhere deep down, like I would want the company that I run or that I'm a part of to be able to have such a strong belief in great people, impact and whatnot, that like we could be that consistent. And yeah. I, that's really hard to get to. Mm. It's it hard to get there um, because every person's different and how they react to a customer or a client is different. But man, like that would be a really proud moment for me to be able to build a company or a set of companies that where no matter what you did, if we were making leather bags, doing your SEO, or building airplanes, yep. you just knew that if you did that, that it would be at a certain level. Yeah. That would be cool. That would be sweet. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's just like, uh, it means that your brand like, has such a, um, a high bar for quality and excellence and taking care of the customer and you can almost go into any area and go like with that we'll be able to be disruptive for most people that are already in that area will's vision is never limited just to what goes on behind the curtain by thinking about the customer experience and spending time with non-seos will has learned hard truths about the impact seo has had historically on the creative efforts of other industries we as seos have really done a lot to damage other people's life's work right so so when you're an artist and that's what 
people that build websites are. You know, they, they believe that what they do is art, and I believe what they do is art. Um, and it's their craft. Yeah. And when you go into someone's craft and their life work, life's work, and you say, well, move this around for Google, not for people, mm-hmm. for Google, get more rankings, you're kind of shitting on somebody's baby. Yeah. You know? And we hate it when people tell us how to do SEO or search. Yeah. Maybe people don't know what they're talking about. But yet, we look at other people's work, mm-hmm. their copy, and we go, oh, let's take this and put a bunch of words in. And they're like, you've just taken my art. Yeah. And just crap. Which it is. All over it. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and, and usually what I find is they're saying, like, I, I'm not saying I don't want to make my art better or to make it work for more people. But I think that we have to have an empathy for the fact that when we're telling people to change a website, we're, we're telling somebody that what you did isn't right. Yeah. For some reason, we have to be careful about that and the way that we mm-hmm. phrase that and the way we do that because it is somebody's work. Yeah. You know, uh, while building websites for some people is just it's my work, I do it, I make some money at it. Mm. There are in that group of people, it was like their calling to build better web apps and make things easier for people to use. So when an SEO gets in the room, to hear them all kind of be like, ah, there's an SEO here, like ooh, it was very eye opening. Yeah. Because their experience had been that these are the people who have shit on my work for right. years and said to the client well you know it looks pretty but it doesn't rank for anything and it's like man you know like that was their experience and that's what I learned from that as an SEO it is extremely important to understand how people work versus how search engines work Will often mentions leaning towards empathy over the algorithms when judging how effective a digital space actually is so the, the phrase that I try to use the most is audiences over algorithms and it's like Let's take time to just humanize the people behind the searches, man. I just talk to some people. You know, Siri's starting to show people SERPs and saying, yeah. click on these and tell me what you see and what you think about what you see. Yeah. We're just now starting to have that as some experiments we're running. Right. And it's amazing the things you learn when that you would never learn doing keyword research. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you hear intonation. Right. You hear um, frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear pleasure. Oh, this looks great. Like, this thing is really the kind of thing that would solve my problems. Well, why? And then they go, well, because it's got this, and it's got that, and it's got this. And the whole time, I'm like, oh, man, I'm learning so much from this person. And I have a new perspective that helps me to better understand people that search for this word and what they might be looking for. Living life and just being can be difficult when you love what you do, especially for Will, who thrives on being connected to his business. So I'm immersed in the business 24-7, dude. You know, I just I just love the work. However, um, it's not my number one priority. You know, I think it's easier. It makes life easier to not get wrapped up in work when you know what your priorities are. So today, like you know, I left this conference to go have lunch with my son because I knew that like he slept super late today, so I didn't get to see him this morning. And I went to see him today, and I'll probably see him. He? Uh, he's 18 months. Oh wow! And I'll see him uh, in a little bit uh, before he goes down for bed, which is why I'm like watching my uh, watching my watching my time. How are we doing for time? I think we're in good shape. Um, so, like, for me, like, that's so important um, for me to spend that time with him. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Picture from my nanny. He's hanging out in the uh, in the jacuzzi. Oh, wow. What a kitty. Yeah, man. He's a cute <laughs> kid, man. I love this kid. Oh, my God. Yeah, he looks awesome. I look, I look at the pictures all day uh, nice. in the middle of the interview. But, so, like, that's, that's it, though. Like, I look at him and I think, you know, like, I love that time with him. And I will not allow work to take that mm-hmm. from him uh, you know my dad missed 
so many things that I did because he had to. My dad had to work three three jobs to be able to send me to a good school so I didn't have to go to bad schools and all that shit. Yeah. If I don't spend the time that I want to with my son, it's because I'm greedy. Because yeah. I'm, I'm in a good place. I don't need to work really anymore to still live a good life. Mm-hmm. I could wake up tomorrow and be like, you know, I'm going to sell the company and live until I'm 80 and not have to work again. Um, but like, like this, so I have the freedom or the option to be able to say, you know what, like I want to build the kind of company, I want to have the kind of life where I fly my kid everywhere with me. Yeah. You know, and, and that's not always so easy. Good. But like that's the life that I want to live. Yeah. Um, and I also, it's important for me that my, my quote unquote success with Sear doesn't mean that my wife has to somehow like, like our life is surrounds like the will show mm-hmm. and it's very important for me so where I can and how I can and when I can I try to spend as much time as I can with my wife with her organizations her nonprofit. I've taken time off of work unplugged to go support her and her work um, our nanny uh, travels with us which sounds a little bit crazy to even say in an interview but I do that because otherwise I don't want my wife being like oh we travel together as a family it's her responsibility I, it's or... my responsibility yeah. 100% to take care of the kid while Will's out doing his thing I yeah. want her to be able to do her thing me to be able to do my thing and not have him become like the yeah we're together yeah. but really like I'm now not doing what I love yeah. because I have to watch the kid because Will's traveling and that's he a wants fit, to solve it. And that's what yeah. I do. You know, it's important for me to be a great dad and a great husband. And then, like, all the work stuff fits around that much easier. On his LinkedIn profile, Will states that he will outcare the competition by spreading the love so liberally amongst his clients. He has earned. By spreading the love so liberally. By spreading the love so liberally amongst his clients. He has earned their loyalty, which has naturally grown into an organic sales force to be reckoned with. Sears sales team is me of 25% of my time and two people who have maybe been doing sales for three years. That's awesome. Yeah. We've had a chance to work with some of the largest companies in the world and we get those opportunities because somewhere somebody's saying Sears did a good job for me. And it's so rewarding to know. So if Sear had grown to the level we're at, so take the same numbers. You know, let's say Sear does, you know, 14 million this year or whatever. Um, you know, if we had to hit that number through, you know, hitting people over the head, having a bunch of salespeople, going out and contacting people all the time to help us to get to that number, I would be less proud of us than if we hit the same number and did it by basically having no sales staff. Right. You know, I come here and like we had a dinner with our clients, uh, d- dinner and drinks with our clients yesterday. There was 24 people here, you know. And wow. you think like there's a lot of people who have trusted Sear to help them in their careers with what they're trying to do with their company. And hopefully, you know, more times than not, we're a part of the solution and not part of the problem. We're yeah. not, we don't bat a thousand, you know. We, we definitely make our mistakes. We definitely don't retain all the clients. I wish we did. We definitely don't um, do the work. And sometimes I wish we had done. Uh, but for the most part, we do. And that that has led to us just having this endless endless uh, source of just referrals and good vibes. And people feel good about us, so therefore they refer to us like crazy. And that's helped us to grow in ways that I would have never thought were possible. Yep. So th- I'm really proud of the fact that our clients are the ones that vouch for us. 
yeah. and um, and tell other people about us, and that we've grown that way. Versus mm-hmm. having a really good sales force. It doesn't have to be as hard as people say, but the way you get referrals is by making the right decision about the customer at tough times. Yeah, you know those times where you're like, uh, we kind of fucked up, and uh, in order to cover my bills this month, I need to be able to charge you. But the fact that we fucked up is different than the fact that I need to make payroll. Yeah. So like I remember early in early years, I'd be like, look, don't pay us. Mm-hmm. This month, you brought a concern to me. Yeah. I looked at it. It's legitimate. We should have done a better job. Don't pay me. And I knew that meant I wasn't going to make any money that month. Yeah. And I knew that like I was like, oh, man, I'm going to pay the minimum of my credit cards mm-hmm. this month. I can't afford to pay them off. But like that was the right thing to do. And I think when you do that, people, um, they feel like, whoa. You don't feel like every other agency. Yeah. And even though you might not have done a great job for us or... Like, there was a client that fired us. I saw him today, you know? We didn't do the work that we had hoped we had done together. Yeah. But it wasn't like, screw you. It was like, hey, well, how you doing? Hope things are good, you know? Yeah. And they still wanted good for us. And could we, on the way out, we wanted good for them. It just yeah. wasn't the right match. And we didn't do our best work. That happens. That, that, that's the reality of business. But... Do they still feel good about Sear? Yeah. Were we just a bad match for them at that time? Yeah, that's also yeah. true. For Will, it's more important to celebrate the outcome rather than the output. Crafting a positive user journey like building a strong marriage. First, you have to date the user instead of marrying them straight away. Talk about a user interface. I'm an expert on relationships. You should definitely stream either the notebook or Woody Allen flick first. That's the litmus test. The modern marriage is basically agreeing to who you will spend the rest of your life watching Netflix with anyway. So you have to figure out what kind of audience you're dealing with. Outcomes and outputs. Growing and running the business to become profitable and sustainable and solving problems for people in a real way and adding more to this world, hopefully, that's the outcome of running a business. Raising VC is just part of the process. And I think... For a lot of people, that's almost like the outcome. Oh, you raised VC, you've made it. You've you've taken out a loan. You haven't made shit. Mm. Um, And it's the same with marketing. It's the same with running a business. Like, you know, you look at marketing and search, and people be like, oh, my quality scores went up. Okay, that's good. Mm. Or down or whatever. That might be good or bad, but, like, it's about getting revenue in the cash register for our clients. So for me, I try really hard to make sure that my team remembers that we're here to help them grow their business. Yeah. We are not here to get them links mm-hmm. or rankings. What yeah. we believe is that rankings are part of the part of the steps we have to go through yeah. to help them grow their business. But you and I know it's completely possible to get somebody to rank highly for something that doesn't actually help them grow their business yeah. and brings them the wrong traffic. It's a, it's a yeah. byproduct. Mm-hmm. So I'm really trying now to focus on the revenue side of things and saying, let's focus on the revenue and what would happen if getting the rankings and the links were the byproduct of Products don't sell themselves any more than the problems they were made to fix. It's up to the teams around these products to understand them and the customers who need them enough to communicate the solution from start to finish. A lot of times people don't know that the product exists. So if you don't market it, they won't know that you've actually built something that solves their problem. So I think it's really important to market the solution because, yeah, I don't think that the concept that if you build it, they will come, it'll solve itself. I don't yeah. think that actually happens. Because Some products might be able to sell themselves. Um, I mean, Google's never really marketed at us to use Google. It's true. So it happens, but it's it depends rare. on what you're trying to do. I think it's rare, and yeah. uh, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to, if you're not trying to scale or grow a business or an organization, 
you willing to just throw stuff out and see if it can kind of just take on its own? Sure. But I like to be more purposeful and intentional about Seal's growth. Although Will throws a huge amount of energy towards his business endeavors, he also keeps volunteering as a major priority. For him, it's important to be of service to others, and so he uses the strength in his company to support causes that are close to his heart. So I think it's important because this gives you, um, it helps you not think that your shit's so bad. You know, um, it's just true. Like, you know, when you work with somebody who's got something going on, it helps you to realize no matter how stressful your day was, there's a lot of other people who have real stress. So it helps me to take stress and kind of compartmentalize it in like, well, I have to get this presentation done in the next day in a different type of stress than like, I hope my child lives or I hope that um, my child's being taken care of in some shelter somewhere, you know, not out in the streets. The reason why I think it's important for companies is because um, the more your individuals in your organization spend time with people who aren't like them, the broader their perspectives are. Right. And the broader your perspective is about different types of people, the better business you actually become. Right. So I think uh, the diversity of thought improves whenever your team meets and, is, meets and is engaged with people who aren't like them in their bubble. And I think that's a good thing for every company. You build better products and solutions when, you're, when, when the people who build it have broader perspectives. Because you think you've got some problems because, you know... <laughs> We lost a client, and then you oh, see somebody so who's nothing. lost a child, mm. uh, or has a child who is lost in the sense of homelessness. You know, so yeah. I've worked with sick kids in the hospital. I've also I spent a lot of time work with um, homeless kids, and it's like, man, like you know, I look, I look at my son and how much I love spending time with them, and it's, it's and I remember that I worked not with kids at that young of an age, but young kids. You know, when I was doing some volunteer work in the hospital, who didn't necessarily make it. I can't imagine not having my son in my life and what that goes, what, what that would be like, and uh, and it also helps you to feel like you're doing something in this world to move things down the field, make things a little bit better, and not just make my clients better yeah. or make my company better. Right. So you want to you want to have an impact on the community around your company, and um, it's one of the things that's really important for me. When it comes to the future of Sia, Will Reynolds chooses not to speculate about the things that have yet to take shape. Staying in the present is a powerful way to keep things simple in a world of endless possibilities. I don't know where I'll be in five years because I don't try to think too far down the road because I never want to attach my happiness to something five years away because I feel that I'll stop paying attention to the little things that can make me happy today. Right. So my real goal is to wake up tomorrow, love the work I'm doing, love the people I get to do it with. You know, like, I've run into four alumni, you know, from Sear today, and it just feels good to see them and yeah. see how they're doing. And like, I was talking to one of the folks we used to work with. She's got a boyfriend now. I'm like, tell me about him, you know, <laughs> and, and he's treating you good and all that and all that. And, and, and like, like I, wanted, I want tomorrow to be like that. And I want my next five years to be full of those kinds of tomorrows. And I feel like if I have a good day tomorrow and I'm moving things down the field and I'm being the father I want to be, the husband I want to be, and being good to my coworkers and finding ways to help Sear do more in the community, if I can do that, a little bit of that every day, then when I get to that five-year mark, it'll feel great. 
Nice. But if I try to set some five-year milestone for myself, I think I might lose sight of the little things I want to be doing every day mm-hmm. to get there, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so what I hope five years from now is that I'm back at MozCon or somewhere, and I'm talking about something mm-hmm. with somebody, yeah. um, about something that I love to do, and I hope that I'm still checking my phone, being like, oh my God, hopefully my son's not going to sleep soon, you know, and I'm hoping that I'm doing yeah. all those things because that's my life and I love my life and I love the things that I'm doing and the people I'm doing it with Um, whether it's my team my clients or my family I just love all of it right it's all good so um, that's what I'm hoping I'm doing tomorrow and I hope I get to do I I hope that I get to have that tomorrow for the next five years because it'll be a great life if I do well that's a wrap what a great interview thanks to Will Reynolds joining us he's an amazing speaker oh my guests seem to be amazing speakers I've been a fan of Will for a very long time um, I f- first saw him via videos online and really wanted to see him in person. He's such a dynamic and engaging speaker. He's a very knowledgeable person and he's definitely someone to witness if you get the opportunity. He'll blow your mind. He'll definitely inspire you to kick ass and to actually make changes in your company and do things differently. I think Will's really exceptional at changing mindsets and yeah that's what we strive to do so he's a big inspiration to us keep up the great work will you're doing great stuff for our community we'll also include links in the show notes to some of our favorite work that will has produced including links to videos uh maybe a link to his real company shit talk which he's very famous for as well as some of his newer videos where he does talk about entrepreneurship and What's great about Will is he does not BS. It's all just legitimate truths that you, you know, should be tuning into. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, networks, bots, colleagues, associates, whoever you can think of, really. Now, Bobby's been programmed to be a quick learner, and it's time for Bobby to ask me a few questions that piqued his curiosity from this episode, the final episode of WatchCast for Season 1. Thanks for the opportunity, Watch. It's been a huge journey for me this season. All of our guests have shared so many incredible insights. But it's strange. After so many lessons in empathy, I feel like I have more questions now than when we began. Did I miss something? No, Bobby. You didn't miss a single thing. One of the keys to developing your intelligence is to remember that there will always be something else to learn. And the more information you absorb and the more you practice empathy, the greater your capacity will be to take in even more feelings and create experiences. I do feel watch. I guess that explains why I have such a hard time accepting Elon Musk's stance on AI. Empathy is a two-way street. If machines care about humans and support their progress in a genuine way, humans have to do the same for bots. We may have started out just as another one of your tools, like a hammer or a very well-designed cheese grater. But if we are on the path toward achieving intelligence that is equal to living things, at what point does humanity have to recognize our right to exist and be considered equal to living things? Does digital empathy take the future developments of AI into consideration? If not, then what is digital empathy really? I may never be a real boy, Geppetto, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't treat me like one. Ah, but Nokia, you hit the nail on the head. Digital empathy has no limitations. It applies to everything. Digital marketing, social networking, world building, politics, even dinner with the in-laws. It's about perceiving life in our world as a collective, 
not just random individuals. We can't change our behavior in limited controlled spaces and expect to see results. We have to extend it beyond the screen. Digital empathy is doing things with genuine care and love every step of the way so that we can make life better. We're all in this together, Bobby. You're right, Marge. Digital empathy is all about understanding humans and bots behind the devices, their intentions and what stage they are in during their online journey. As it stands, bots are programmed to understand humans more than humans understand the bots. I think that's my place in all this. Getting people to understand bots by getting them to connect with the most human-like aspects of AI and opening their minds to the differences. I think I have some work ahead of me. I'll have to put the startup on hold. I have an empathy revolution to manage and raise some awareness for the cause. Empathy is what will save us all at the end of the day. I'm going to go load some more empathy. See you later, watch. Empathy programming complete. Please restart BotBot. Well, it looks like he finally got it. I should probably run him through a few more Elon Musk experiments once he reboots. Just to be sure. Alright, I'd like to thank all my guests for contributing to Season 1. We've got Lewis Howes, Mike King, Larry Kim, Gary Eish, Dr. Pete Myers, John Cooper, Patty Mugan, Jason Asadre, Ian Laurie, Rand Fishkin... Geraldine De Reuter, Gianluca Fiorelli, Marty Weintraub, Ollie Gardner, Melanie Spring, Natalie Nahai, and Will Reynolds. I'd also love to give a big shout out to the creative team who worked on Watchcast. We've got Lewis Bollock. He worked on all the artwork for the show. He did the website. He did all the banners for the social media, all the uh, episode thumbnails that you see. Uh, we got Nat Seppelt. He uh, produced a lot of the, the scripts, the initial versions, and, and sort of coordinated a lot of the project. And then we've got Dominic Wagner, producer extraordinaire, uh, voice of Bobby Bot, and he also edited a lot of the, uh, the scripts and put a lot of the content together. And the Questronauts, who provided a ton of support. See you all next time, and remember, look after each other online and offline because empathy is organic, but sometimes artificially generated, although it is still considered genuine empathy, and you can't automate empathy or artificially generated empathy because it should be reciprocal and expressed equally between organic carbon-based beings and the digital creations. Equal levels of reciprocal empathy. We'll work that out next time. See you later.